All right, good morning. How are y'all doing? All right, y'all ready to get into the Word? Here we are with 2 Thessalonians. We wrapped up 1 Thessalonians last week. And if you think about it, if 1 Thessalonians is what I was calling kind of the, the forgotten letter, um, how much more so does it apply to 2 Thessalonians? You're talking 47 verses, three chapters, 47 verses. And I mean, there's, there's chapters in the Bible that are longer than 2 Thessalonians. There's chapters in the Old Testament that are twice as long, if not more, than 2 Thessalonians. So in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively short book, 47 verses. Um, if you don't know the background for the books of Thessalonians, and we'll release the kids to uh, um, catechism, so if they need to head back, um, they can go ahead and do that. Um, if you don't remember the background, then just go back like 18 months or so and listen to my first sermon on 1 Thessalonians. Because I'm not going to take the time to really go through uh, much of that again and the backdrop and the setting and all of those things. I mentioned a few of them today, but um, it might be helpful, especially if you weren't here for the beginning of the 1 Thessalonians, to go back and listen to that first sermon. But do remember the occasion um, for these books. Paul sends Timothy um, to see how they're doing. Why? Because Paul had planted the Thessalonian church, and he had only been there uh, for a few weeks, maybe a few months at the most, but he, he had been there, and then he moves on, and then they weren't sure how they were doing, so Paul sends Timothy to see how they're doing and to check in on them. He gets a report from Timothy, which is the occasion of 1 Thessalonians and, in part, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Um, there's not too much time between the two letters, maybe a few weeks or a few months. And think about this for a moment. Um, Paul, if you're reading through Acts, which is kind of cool because you can see where the different books of the Bible uh, that Paul writes actually fit into the Acts narrative. So he just gets um, driven out of Philippi. And at this point, after being everything that he's gone through and being in jail and beaten, it would have been much easier for him to go to some like quieter, obscure spot and just take a little, a little breather. But instead, in characteristic fashion, he continues to boldly carry forth his message. And in this case, he actually goes to what's a rather um, influential and prominent city because of its geographic location so that he can impact that city, which then can have an influence on other people as well, which is what we see the Thessalonians do precisely. So a brief overview of the book. He ends up commending them for their perseverance, um, similar to how he does in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. This letter, and in many ways, is a large encouragement to this church. So if you want to be encouraged, uh, just read it yourself and, and apply all those truths that are being told about them. Apply it to yourself as well. He covers two main issues in this book, already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. The first one is the day of the Lord. And then the second one is the issue of, of work or lack thereof, idleness. Now notice, uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians if you're not there yet in chapter 1. It starts out, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who wrote the letter? Well, there's three people listed, right? But we really end up focused on Paul, 
Well, why is that? Because in both the first letter and in the second letter, even though at times he's using the plural form, we, 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 over and over, then he switches. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, who's the I? It's Paul. Okay, he lists himself first. Silvus and Timothy are his traveling companions. It adds a little weight with him mentioning Timothy because Timothy had just come from the church. So he's getting a firsthand report from Timothy as to what he is, is going on in the church. And so it adds a little weight in terms of, hey, Timothy's with me. I kind of know what's going on. He also says it at the very end of the letter as well, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuine, genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Okay, so Paul is really the author of it. Um, why is this written? Why does he write this letter? Well, one, to instruct. Two, to build up and encourage. Like I just said, it's a very encouraging. Both letters are very encouraging. He does give some specific instructions on some different topics, but they're both very uplifting and encouraging, much in the same light as like Philippians. So if you're a little discouraged, especially if you're going through some tough stuff, I mean, just camp out in these letters, and I think they will be a, a blessing to your soul. So it's written to instruct. It's written to build up and encourage, but it's also written to protect. Protect from what or from whom? False teachers and false doctrine. So Paul, um, throughout these letters, repeatedly emphasizes the immediacy of Christ's return. Christ's coming back. He hasn't come back. He, he corrects that error, right? But he could come back, so be prepared. But what had happened? Even in this short time, think about this. The church had not been established for very long, and already... False teachers had crept in with false doctrine. And they had caused quite a stir teaching unorthodox things, which led to what? Restlessness. Restlessness and uncertainty amongst the believers. So Paul corrects the information. What does he do after he, he exhorts them and corrects them? He encourages them to stand firm. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, and this is where it is, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. By what? He says it. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so apparently... Um, there was false prophets prophesying that. There was false teachers. There was people writing um, false, falsely under Paul or the other apostles' names, letters. And it was leading these people um, astray. Now, why would there be people doing this? I mean, think about that. Why would there be people doing this? Well, sometimes it might be a person's desire to be a leader. They want to have influence. Sometimes people want a following, Right? Some people want adherence to their words instead of God's words. Sometimes it's for dishonest gain. Paul talks about that in Philippians. 
And sometimes it's for authority issues. They couldn't handle real authority. They couldn't handle Paul's authority. And so they want to be the authority. One of the reasons, if you think about it, that Paul never took donations for himself, he mentions it even, whenever he's in a city doing missionary work, is he wanted to show them that he wasn't there for the money. Now, sometimes other churches will send it as a donation. But the false teachers, some of them would come peddling their wares, and guess what? They would expect a payment. So Paul removed any possibility of that charge being brought against him by working in each city to make money to support himself. What was his, what was his trade? Tent maker, right? Okay, there will always be people who claim to be Christians who are willing to exploit believers for financial gain. They're willing to exploit unbelievers for financial gain. We have to be people that cherish and value truth more than finances, that cherish and value truth more than economic stability, that cherish and, fina- and, and cherish and value truth more than our pocketbook. I have a friend who uh, builds decks and, um, and used to stain them at, at one point. And so he had done some work for the, this elderly lady, and the, um, the, the total amount was $700. And the lady wrote him a check for $7,000. Did he take it? No. He had her correct it. Would some people have taken it? Yes. So we have to be on guard ourselves in every form. What is the root of evil? Of all sorts of evil? Not money. That gets misquoted. But what is it? The love of money. We have to be on guard because Satan will use that to try to tempt us and get us off the right path. How many of you have heard of Benny Hinn? You heard of Benny Hinn? Okay. Have you heard of Costy Hinn? That's Benny Hinn's nephew. And Costy, he grew up, and, and you can hear his testimony, um, staying in, in um, hotels that literally cost $30,000 a night to stay in. Gold-plated rooms and everything. And God saves him out of that. And so he gets out of that prosperity gospel movement of false teaching. So Costi's written some, some books, some really good ones. Um, and he's getting ready to, to plant a church currently. So he's talking with a mega church pastor. And the mega church pastor gives him four key pieces of advice on starting his new church. You want to hear him? His first one was drop all churchy language. He was told the Bible is old and dated. Try to use slang whenever you can. Now, I just took that first one and I applied it to 1 Thessalonians because I was like, well, here's this brand new church, right? Weeks, months old. And what are some of the words that Paul uses in writing to this brand new church? Words like wrath, gospel, sanctification, glorified, righteous, and holiness. In fact, holiness, I mean, that appears a number of times in these letters. And he camps on it even and spends an entire chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4 talking about it. Okay, so this new letter to believers, 
where is he focusing? On gospel truths. And he's using language. Where did they turn from? Does First Thessalonians say in chapter 1? They turned from what? Idols. Okay? These people were steeped in pagan mythology. That's what they knew. So Paul's given them churchy language. Why? Because he wants them to understand biblical theology. He doesn't want them drinking the milk forever. And he doesn't wait that long to use these terms with them. Friends, if these people, and some of them weren't very educated at all when you study the education of people back in this time, if those people can handle those words, we can handle those words. The unbelieving world can handle those worlds. But he says, drop all churchy language. The Bible is old and dated. Try to use slang whenever you can. Second, I had to read this one like three times because I couldn't even believe it. Okay. Play golf with influencers more than you study. Preaching doesn't matter. Just use sermons from other preachers and focus on hanging out with people. Playing golf with influencers grows the church. Preaching isn't that important. What do you guys think about that? You want me to practice that one? (laughs) Third, put sports on all the TVs around the church campus if you have one. Men will come to church and hang out for that. And then fourth, make children's ministry a party. If the kids have fun, everyone comes back. That goes against everything we've been studying for the past 18 months. And, but that is much what you will get from some of the church growth movement. Listen, do you know a key theme in both these letters? It's affliction. Affliction. Now that's not seeker-friendly to talk about affliction, and that's not a way to grow your church. But look at 1 Thessalonians 3. I want you to see this. Paul's talking about affliction. This is the reason he sent Timothy. In verse 1 he says, Therefore when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Hey, we're sending Timothy, is what he's saying, to help establish you so that you're not moved by these afflictions. But look what he goes on to say. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? The afflictions. It is a part of the Christian life. And one of the things we've seen in the past, I don't know, 18 to 20 months or so, is COVID has given those in power the ability to bring their hand against the church. And we've talked about it. And many have done that. And they've lorded their authority in a totally unbiblical way. What's one of the people I've mentioned that has stood up against it? John MacArthur, right? He stood up against it. So did he go and, and, and um, go along with what the state asked everyone to do for a season back in March? Yes, just like we did. But after a couple months, he, he started kind of scratching his head, going, what's going on here? So they started meeting again in California. That's a pretty rough place to be, trying to deal with some of this stuff. And they did all th- sorts of things against him, all sorts of things. Well, guess what? This just came out a couple days ago. 
I mean, he literally defied the state's orders. Just like the, just like the apostle said. You know, they're told, hey, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. Don't, and they're like, we either have to serve God or we have to serve men. That's where MacArthur thought he was at. And I agree with him. Serve God or serve men. He said, we're going to serve God. This is what we're called to do. So, they just received an $800,000 judgment in their favor from the state of California and the local area. <clears throat> Here's what it says. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday voted to authorize a $400,000 payment to settle a legal battle with Grace Community Church over leader, lead pastor John MacArthur's defiance of COVID-19 restrictions in the early months of the pandemic. Under the agreement, which the board unanimously approved without discussion, I thought that was funny, the state of California will also pay the church $400,000. So a total of $800,000. MacArthur has already come out and said, we're giving all, all, the entire $800,000. We're not taking a penny. We're giving it to the, um, the law firm that, that represented us. So affliction. Affliction. And friends, I mean, we're seeing it even much worse in other countries. If you've seen some of the info coming out on Australia, info coming out from Canada, pastors going to jail simply because they're meeting together to have church. In some areas where COVID death hasn't been uh, reported in months. It's ridiculous. But if you think it can't happen here, then you're fooled. And that's why and we've talked about it last year. At, at what point do you draw the line in the sand? At what point? Because if you keep waiting and keep waiting and keep waiting, you're going to be in the water, and you're not going to be on the beach anymore, and you're going to drown. All this to say, when we're talking about afflictions, when we're talking about false doctrine, when we're talking about giving people what they need, you have to be careful what you feed people. Application for us, we need to be careful what we eat. What do I mean by that? What you win them with is what you win them to. So if you use uh, flashy lights and a, and a large presentation and it's all this emotional experience and that's what you win them with, then that's what you are winning them to. And that's what they will continue to expect and define as what Christianity is. Here's what one uh, author said. If you win somebody with that, they're going to be expecting that all the time. And eventually, that gets old. So what do churches do? Churches strive to go bigger, better, flashier, fancier. It's burnout waiting. And in three to four years, the convert won to the event, moves on to the next event church because it's different. What you win them to is what, or what you win them with is what you win them to. Okay? If you win them with the gospel, guess what? That's what will plant them. If you win them with programs and flashiness, that's what will keep them. We want not just converts, we want people to become disciples and to grow in their faith. Now, I'm all for particular events that are reaching out to people, but they need the hard, straight truth of the gospel. And we have to be careful how we communicate that entire event. We have to be careful how we communicate anything we do in the name of Christ. Because guess what happens? Our youth groups 
Christian youth groups, by and large, have kind of adapted, uh, or excuse me, adopted this strategy. And what happens? You have, you have student ministries, and they're, what are they geared towards? Entertaining and wowing and preoccupying these kids. And what happens once their youth group years are over? They try to make the transition to, to regular church, and, and it's nothing like they just experienced in their youth group. So what you win them with is what you win them to. This is why we have so many high schoolers, once they get out of high school, they drop out of church. The experience is different. They weren't one to Christian community. They were one to the show. And when there's no show, guess what? There are no shows. Don't think this can't be fall. Conservative churches. I heard this summer, conservative church in the area decided to have no Bible messages the entire summer. I'm like, what are you doing for two or three hours? And guess what? Maybe somehow that's a strategy for reaching people. I'm not sure. But guess what? It, once you start introducing that Bible, hopefully back at some point, what do you think the reaction is going to be from the unbelievers? I mean, maybe some of them will get saved. I pray they do. But what you win them with is what you win them to. So I'm thankful we have uh, uh, a solid, legitimate youth group here at Liberty where the youth hear the word week after week after week after week. Do they have some fun? Yes. Do they have some games? Yes. Do they do some um, pretty sweet outreach things? Absolutely, they should. But the word is foundational to what they're doing. Look back in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians. After introducing himself in Silvus and Timothy, he says, To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the few times that Paul uses the term church when he writes to a church instead of the word saints. Usually it's saints. If you look at different letters, it's always to the saints, to the saints. This is one of the few times, 1 Thessalonians as well, that he says to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father. Why? Remember, these people were pagan to the core. Pagan to the core. First Thessalonians said they had turned from idols, and yet now they are the ecclesia. What's ecclesia? Well, we translate that from the Greek as church. But guess what? The Greek Old Testament, which is what many of them would have been reading back then, not the Hebrew. They would have been reading the Greek. That's the same ter term that God uses to refer to Israel. And what's he letting them know? The church is the new people of God. Thessalonians, you're the new people of God. Okay, Israel in the Old Testament is now you in the New Testament. You're the church. And this understanding will manifest itself elsewhere in, in these letters, as we'll see, as he takes language formerly reserved for Israel, and guess what? He applies it to the Thessalonian congregation. Now, this has implications for covenant theology and dispensational theology. We won't get into it, but it does. Okay, the point is this. We are the church. We are the new 
people of God. God, from the very beginning, has been calling a people to be his own. And if you've trusted in Christ, then you're one of those people. You're part of that new family of God. Over and over again, and I still hear it sometimes, but especially when COVID first hit, I heard the refrain, the church is not the building. The church is not the building. And it was said, you know, many times by good-meaning people, um, usually as a reason, hey, we've got to shut down for a while. You know, oh, well, the church is not the building. Some used it as an excuse to not go to church, right? Well, if the church is not the building, I don't even need to go to the building. Some used it as an excuse to not go back. But the church is not the building. There's, there's much truth in that. But I'd also say um, online community is not a church. So if the church is not the building, then what is the church? I mean, is it the people? Is it only the people? I mean, could you have a church with a person from Washington and four people from Illinois and two people from Arkansas and and they never get together, but, I mean, they call themselves a church? I don't think so. So you do need a meeting place. I mean, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and guess what? They're gathered somewhere. They are together. And, and the way it would have gone down is they would have all gathered together and someone would have read these letters to them on a Sunday morning. But there was a meeting place. Yes, does it have to have a steeple? No. It can be underground if the call arises for it. But that's where when we talk about the marks of a church, right, we have the preaching, you have the ordinances, but guess what? I mean, it's almost like it's assumed, but you have to have people that are gathering together. What does Hebrews talk about? Don't forsake what? The gathering of the saints. So sitting on your couch in PJs with the live stream really doesn't fit the definition. Now some might say, well, I, that, that fills me. That fills me. Well, many, I mean, many things might fill you, friends. That doesn't mean it's church. Second, I'm not sure it, it truly fills you. It might, but I'm not sure it truly fills you. You know, you know, hearing the word preached online, and actually just hearing it audibly, I listen to a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of podcasts and sermons. But there's a difference between listening to it or watching it online and just sitting 30 feet away from the pastor. There's a difference. Those are two different atmospheres, two different experiences. And two, you really can't do any type of ministering to others, right? I mean, part of church is us gathering together. The primary is worship the Lord. But there is a secondary part. Paul says, like, when you gather, there's, hey, there's some things we're supposed to be doing, and you've been gifted by God to minister to one another. There's not much ministering going on if you're on your couch in your PJs. Maybe to your cat or dog, I don't know. So here's the thing. When we receive these truths, we need to truly receive them. We need to let them penetrate our hearts. Look at Acts chapter 2. He starts out in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. What did they do? They received his word. The ones who get baptized are the ones who received it. Many people heard it. Not everyone received it. There's a difference. Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. They received it. Okay? It didn't mean it just came in their midst. No, when you read what this context here of everything that happens, like they truly received it. They believed it. And then they were walking it out. They received the word. And here it says, in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So all this stuff's going on, and they're being attacked, and they receive the word. They truly receive it. And how do they receive it? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. What a great little phrase when we're hearing the word given to us. Let's receive it, regardless of what our circumstances are, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me make a, a couple closing comments. This was a, a fledgling church. Just a, an infant church. Just started out. And God cares about them. We don't know how big the church was. We do know it wasn't a mega church. It was probably on the, on the smaller side at this point. But two whole letters are written to them that are in the scriptures here. Two letters that get encapsulated as part of God's word. He cared about this fledgling little church. Guess what? He cares about you. In this fledgling church where Paul was, think about this just for a minute. For a few weeks, a few months at most. I mean, read through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in one setting. It's pretty easy to do. Um, you walk away realizing how much Paul loves this church. Like, he really loves this church. And he was only there for a short amount of time. And, and sometimes I think, we think, well, oh, once I get to know people or I have to get to know them a little better or whatever. Like, Paul loves these people and he was around them, and it was probably, uh, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, see you next week or something like that. I mean, they were doing life together for the short time they had together. But he gets to know them, and he really loves them. And it comes out through his letters, same as the other letters. But, man, it is really clear in First and Second Thessalonians how much he loves them. And, and my point is this. We don't need years to get to know believers to, like, truly love them and do ministry with them and partner with them and be uni united with them. I mean, we don't. I mean, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then, then our spirits, right? Your spirit, my spirit, the same spirit, the one spirit that Ephesians talks about, we can be united together in whatever God calls us to do. And we can have a love that transcends the phony definition of love that the world gives us. We can have a true biblical love. It doesn't take years to get there. Paul could get there in weeks and months, and it looks like it was reciprocated from them. We see the same thing in Corinthians, if you think about it. Paul's like, look, man, we shared with you the word of God, but not only that, we shared with you our very hearts. Like he opens up to them. 
and there's like this mutual, mutuality of affection that we need to have as the body of Christ. So we're going to see in this letter, we're not going to see like a display of the dialectic skill that we see in Romans. We're not going to be brought to like mystical heights like we are in Ephesians. But what we do see is his affection for the people he is ministering to. What we do see is he wants them to be built up in the faith, just like God wants us to be built up in the faith. And when it is taken into account that the letters are so short and it comes through so clearly, that should awe us even more. We should be amazed. This is the heart we should have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A true biblical love. That's why Paul camps on it. Why? Because it's foundational. It's foundational for us walking in unity. It's foundational for us if we want true biblical community. We're getting ready to start our life groups. Look, our life groups, um, y'all do a great job. We push them pretty hard because we think they are vital to your walk with the Lord if you're going to do life in community at Liberty. And so about 90% of uh, of our households are involved in a life group. So we're getting ready to start those in like whatever it is, 12 days or something like that. Encourage you to be a part of one. That's where the ministry continues. That's where the love can continue to be displayed. Yet can it be done on a Sunday morning? Absolutely, and it should. It blesses my heart every week when people are here at like 12.15, 12.30, 1 o'clock or whatever. Um, we could do a little bit better getting here a little bit early before service starts. <clears throat> but y'all like talking and hanging out, Right? And let's make sure those conversations are gospel-focused. But let's continue that with with the life groups. That gives us an opportunity to continue to grow, not just in our faith personally. Like, we can take uh, the the church discipline book. I mean, we can read that on our own and, and learn about that. But let's learn about it in the community and have the discussions. And let's be praying for one another. And let's be encouraging one another. And let's be doing life together more than just an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Okay. So this should be our heart too. For the people sitting in front of us, behind us, next to us, this should be our heart. A biblical love for one another that can't be hidden even if we wanted it to. It just pours out of who we are. In our conversations, in our talks, it pours out. That's a testament. It's a testament to the world. It's one of the keys that people will know us by. This biblical love that only can come from God himself. If you got saved later in life, you probably know that distinction much more better, potentially, at least experientially you do. Because you saw and practiced the world's love, and then you saw, experienced, and have practiced God's love completely different. This is the love that God pours out. We love because why? He first loved us. That's that's why we can even love to begin with, because he loves us. And so great was his love, the love of the Father for us, 
that he sent Jesus. How, how could he show it any greater way than to send his own son to redeem us? To redeem us for what? A people to be God's own. To redeem us for God's own pleasure. To redeem us to walk in his ways, to glorify his name, and go with him, whatever might come our way. That he is faithful, he is faithful, and will see us through whatever afflictions we might be facing right now, whatever afflictions we might walk through tomorrow, and whatever afflictions might come our way in a month, next year, in ten years. He is faithful. He will walk us through it. Continue to press on, my brothers and sisters. Continue to walk accordingly to the words that we've been given by God himself in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be a people, a people called by you. We are a people called by you, God. And we want to be a people that actually live that out, that practice it. That live in that calling. Lord, help us to have a true filling of your spirit to exhibit the fruit of the spirit in all walks of our life, God, at home, at work, at church. And help us to keep your ways, Lord. We can only do it by your spirit. And we thank you that you do love us and because of that, we can love. We can love you and we can love others rightly. Lord, thanks for who you are. Thanks for the name of Jesus that it, that name every knee will bow. Thank you, Father, that you are great, that the Son is great, that the Spirit is great, that you are the triune God who rules over all. We trust you, Father, and we walk with you, Lord. We follow you. We seek you, God. Continue to strengthen us to do so each day. Amen.